0: So imagine you are single. Now some of you guys don't have to imagine this, but imagine you are single. Sorry. I, okay, I'll take shots. I, I apologize. <laughs> and and you you have an opportunity to meet someone that that you dreamed of. Like this perfect this person is a perfect person that that has everything that you ever dreamed of. Character, value, even looks, everything that you wanted, this person has, and this person is actually interested in you, and so you get to pursue this perfect relationship with this perfect person. Uh, but as you're sitting in a cafe uh, in public, which is a godly thing to do when you're dating, you know, rather than watching Netflix at home, it's better to, to go to public and spaces and, and to interact. But um, someone walks in as you as you're. Drinking some tea. And that person is someone that you knew from years ago. Someone that knows your past. Someone that knows your failures. Someone that knows that you weren't that holy back then. That you weren't that perfect back then. Someone that is aware of all your mistakes. How would you feel at that moment? Would you feel excited? Say hi to that person? Probably not. You will try to cover up yourself. See if you can get out of the cafe so that you don't have to talk to that person, right? Why? Because you're ashamed of your past. You're ashamed of the, the things that you did uh, before. And you repented. You know that you're wrong. You're you, you wronged or you did something wrong. So you, you dealt with those issues with the Lord. But still at that moment, what's happening is shame is, is, is coming into your heart. And when shame comes into your heart, it destroys The intimacy that you have in a relationship, relationship with God and a relationship with others. We see in Genesis chapter two, God created man and woman, and both Adam and Eve, they were naked in the garden, but they were not ashamed. That's what it says in the end of chapter two. And although it's talking about the physical appearance, it's also pointing to a spiritual reality that tells us that men and women, they they were completely exposed, but not ashamed. They had nothing to hide. They had nothing to cover, no secrets whatsoever. Everything could be in the light, and people could be not ashamed. And so they were in perfect harmony, perfect relationship with God, nothing to hide with God, nothing to hide with one another. But we see in chapter 3 that sin enters into the world, the fall, and the first thing that happens is Adam and Eve they hide, and they try to avoid God's presence. It's not only that, but they they create clothes to cover up themselves because they realize their nakedness. And so what we see in the very beginning in the garden is that when sin enters into the world, it creates this thing called shame. And what shame does is it destroys the intimacy that you have in a relationship, first with God, and even intimacy that you have with other people. That's the danger of shame. And in today's passage, we see that God, although he's leading his people into this new season, this new land, he knows that there's an issue that he needs to deal with before they can actually go and claim this this promised land. And that's where we find ourselves in Joshua chapter 5. It's a new beginning, yet there's an old problem that God is trying to deal with at this passage, and the reason why this is so significant is because in the same way, God is all that we can ever dream, dream for, that he's, he's perfect in every possible way. He is holy, and he actually wants to have a relationship with us. That's pretty incredible. But the thing is, if we have shame and guilt that sin brings into our, our lives, what happens is our intimacy with the Lord is broken it's not just that, our intimacy with other people within the community of God, it gets destroyed as well. So I think today's passage has much significance um, in that regard, so let's look at verse one. It says this. There's three parts to the story. The first part is this. It says in verse one, as soon as all the kings of the Amorites who are beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites who are by the sea. So basically, everyone who live who's living in the Promised Land. Um, it says, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over. Their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them. So what the text is telling us is that these people who are living in the promised land, they are defeated. They are discouraged. They, they are dismantled. Uh, They are scared to the point that they can't even breathe properly. Why? Because of the people of Israel. And if you go back to chapter 2, remember when Joshua, when he was on the other side of the Jordan River, he sends two spies to see what's going on in the land of Canaan. And those two spies meet this lady called Rahab. And Rahab tells the spies, we're actually scared of you guys. You might not know this, but we heard what happened in Egypt. We heard what happened to Pharaoh. We are well aware of what happened when it comes to uh, the Red Sea and how you guys left Egypt. And we are terrified. And now it's not that they just heard all the things that Yahweh can do, that God can do, but now they actually seen it. It's not just a story anymore, but they have experienced before their eyes the Jordan River, which was a raging, surging, overflooded river at that time. God parts that river 19 miles all the way to the city of Adam. And at once, the entire group of of the people of Israel, they can cross the Jordan River. And they are there in the promised land. and, And so they are terrified. They are scared to death. They are paralyzed by fear. And this is so ironic because you know, the Israelites, they are worried, okay, how can we conquer this land? But when you get to chapter six, verse one, we are told that the people in Jericho, they are locking their doors. They are closing their gates. They're saying, okay, we are so afraid, so we're just gonna stay here. No one's going out, no one's coming in. So, in a sense, they are imprisoned in their own city. They are are paralyzed, they are locked uh, behind their own gates. And this is so important. So the first thing that we see in today's text is this. God binds up the enemy. If you're taking notes, this is the first thing that I want you to notice in today's text. God binds up the enemy. In a supernatural way, God basically puts the enemy into their own city and, and locks them up. And why is this so significant? Well, what happens next is God's going to tell the Israelites to do two things, two things that are very strange and and weird. It says that God told Joshua to circumcise all the male Israelites. The second thing was to celebrate the Passover. Now, um, if you don't know what circumcision is, please don't Google it uh, at at this point. Uh, Just ask. Uh, ask a friend later or a teacher later and they, they can explain to you what circumcision is but basically you are cutting off a piece of a f- a, a flesh on your body and you're removing that um, and so that's happening and we know that even with today's medicine and all the technology it's not just a matter of hours but it takes days for you to recover uh, once you are circumcised. The other thing that we know is the Passover feast it was a week-long feast so People are celebrating, they are eating, uh, they are enjoying their time. So these are two things that are very odd to do when you are in the midst of a battlefield. Like God tells the Israelites, you know, when they are right outside the gates of Jericho, at this place called Gilgal, he tells them, hey, get circumcised and celebrate the Passover. That's pretty crazy. So why does God do this? Why does God... Bind the enemies of Israel so that they can go through these, these rituals. Well, we are told in verse 10, today's passage, first about the Passover. It says, While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain, and the manna seized the day after they ate the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Cana that year. So we don't have time to go over all the details about the Passover, but there's two things that you have to know. Number one, Passover was, began in Exodus. When the Israelites, they were living under uh, the the rule of Pharaoh, when they were living in slavery, when they were basically in bondage, uh, God delivered his people in a miraculous way. God saved his people out of Egypt, and to remember that God told Israel, okay, your calendar is going to begin with the Passover that we're going to celebrate not with New Year's but with the Passover because that was your beginning. That's how your nation started. Remember that it was by by the grace of God that you were delivered. Remember that it was by my hand that, that you were delivered out of Egypt. So the Passover feast, it happened in the very beginning of the year because it was a sign, a symbol of a new beginning, a new season. Not only that, we know that the text tells us that, that when they were celebrating the Passover, they ate from the fruits, the produce of the land. And that is so significant because for 40 years, what did they eat? They had manna, right? They had no idea what this was, so they literally called, what is it? It's this type of bread that they ate daily for for 40 years. And yeah, it was okay because, you know, they were trying to survive in the wilderness. But at the same time, if you eat the same thing for 40 years, I love steak. I love pasta. But if I'm eating the same food for 40 years, I mean, it's not that great. Uh, But you see, by God's grace, they were able to survive in the wilderness for 40 years eating manna. But now they are enjoying they are feasting on all that god provides in the promised land in other words they are feasting on the blessings of god so that's the second thing i want you to notice in today's text the people of god are feasting on the blessings of god at the very end okay the people of god are feasting they are enjoying the the, the all the blessings of god so in the beginning you have god binding up the enemies of israel at the end you have israel feasting on the blessings of God. And so the question is, how do we experience this this reality where we too in our everyday life, we are experiencing God's blessings while we're experiencing His favor and we are feasting on on His presence and His power? Well, the question is, well, what happens in the middle that leads Israel to this point? And that's what we see in verse 2 through 9. Because in verse 2 through 9, we see that, that Joshua is told to circumcise every male Israelite. Now, circumcision today is a medical practice. It's something that's culturally accepted, um, if not expected. At the same time, it doesn't have any spiritual meaning uh, to it, it's just something that you do uh, for medical reasons. But that was not the case for the Israelites. This had deep spiritual meaning it was a sign that they were in a covenantal relationship with God. Just like you know this ring that I have in my hand, it reminds me that I'm in this incredible covenantal relationship with my wife, that I made a decision, that I made a commitment before the Lord and before people that I would love my wife no matter what, till death parts us, um, that I would honor her, cherish her, love her, that's the commitment I made, and I'm reminded by, by my ring of that reality every single day. And so circumcision, although it wasn't something that was physically uh, displayed to other people, it was a physical mark that was made on the body of the Israelites in a way to remember the covenant relationship that they have with God. So circumcision is not something that we should giggle about. It's not something that's weird and awkward or disgusting. But at least in the Bible, we are told that this is something that's very beautiful. In fact, it started all the way back in Genesis when Abraham made a, he, that he was promised to, to be a great a father of a great nation. That he was promised to have this land. He was promised that God was going to be blessing him and his descendants. And as a sign of that covenant, God tells Abraham, I want you to circumcise yourself and also circumcise your children. So it was a sign uh, that people were, were set apart for God's purposes, for his glory. And that's the, the deep meaning of circumcision. But we also see in the New Testament that there is a deeper meaning to circumcision. If you look at Romans chapter 2, verse 28-29, it says this, Paul says this, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly? nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. He pray, his praises is not from men, but from God. So Paul says something very interesting. He says, "Although physically Jewish people are circumcised, it's not a matter of outward or physical circumcision, but a person is a Jew inwardly because they are circumcised, not just in their body, but they are circumcised in their heart. It's a matter of the heart. So we see that circumcision is a physical sign, an outward sign that points us to an internal reality. Circumcision is something that's physical that points us to a spiritual reality. The fact that, that someone is physically circumcised, it points to the fact that their heart is circumcised. We see this in Deuteronomy chapter 10 when Moses talks about how to walk in the ways of the Lord, how to serve the Lord and love the Lord with with all your heart and mind and soul. It says in verse 16, Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16, Moses says something incredible. He says, circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart. Not your body, but circumcise the foreskin of your heart and no longer be stubborn. So here we see a connection where an uncircumcised heart is a stubborn heart. It's a heart that is prideful. It is a heart that does not want God. On the other side, a circumcised heart is a new heart. Something about your old heart was taken away, and it's no longer stubborn, but now it is submissive to God. And we see in Acts chapter 7 when Stephen was stoned right before that, you know the reason why he was stoned is because he made this statement in Acts chapter 7 verse 51. You stiff-necked people, talking to the Jews, uncircumcised in hearts and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your father did, so do you. And he was stoned. So, the idea of being circumcised in your heart is connected with your obedience to the Lord, how you are either stubborn or s- submissive to the Lord. So let's go back, come back to Joshua chapter 5. The problem in today's text is this. God tells Joshua, circumcise every male um, who's an Israelite because they're not circumcised. Now you might ask the question, why, are, why aren't they circumcised? I thought that that was a command that was given um, uh, by God to Abraham. Well, it could be that they were in the wilderness, and so it's, it's not the most ideal thing to do in the wilderness. It could be that it was just really hard to do and inconvenient. But I think the reason that, that this previous generation was not circumcised is found in today's passage. It says in verse 6 of Joshua chapter 5, For the people of Israel walked... 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation the men of war who came out of Egypt perished why because they did not obey the voice of the Lord so the fact that this this generation before Joshua the fact that they were not circumcised it wasn't a matter of physical circumcision it Displayed that they were, they were not circumcised in their hearts. It displayed that they were still stubborn in their hearts. It displayed that they were still prideful and they lived as if God did not exist. Do you see the problem? It's not a matter of, okay, do you, did you do something physical to your body? It's more of a matter that, you no, know, did you really commit yourself to the Lord? Did God renew your heart in a way that you can display that through physical? circumcision now i don't think they were intentional about this i don't think they purposely said god i'm going to disobey you i don't like you therefore i'm not going to get circumcised or circumcise my children i don't think that was the case i think it was more subtle like a lot of times how we subtly disagree and disobey god in our current generation it's not that we disagree with god's word it's just inconvenient it's just something that's 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 not that popular is, is something that requires a lot of work. And therefore, although you know God's word tells you to, to pursue circumcision, it's like, no, I'm not going to do that. In the New Testament, um, one, one thing that parallels to circumcision is baptism. Because baptism, as we know, is an outward sign of an inward reality. When you get baptized, just like circumcision is a one-time thing that you do once in your life, baptism you do once in your life. And as you are going into the, this body of water, you are saying that although I'm physically going into this water and coming out, what's really happening spiritually is that I am dying with Christ and I, I, my sins are buried with Christ and now I'm alive, having this new life in Christ. So baptism is very similar to circumcision in this way that it is an, a physical reality that's pointing to an internal spiritual reality. And in many ways you know we it's not that you know we disagree with this command to follow christ we disagree with all the commands that we see in god's word including to 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 pursue baptism or to sue to be part of god's community and the church and all this but it's just that, that it's inconvenient that maybe down the road we'll do it well for the generation that came before joshua later 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 became 40 years and the question is now, how long are we going to stay stubborn in our hearts? And so God says, I want to renew my covenant with you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to love you. I, I called you. And I'm going to lead you every step of the way. Are you willing to circumcise not just your body but your heart and give your full devotion to me? And the people of Israel says, yes. I want to do that, and it says in verse nine of today's passage, and the Lord said to Joshua, "Today, I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you, and so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day." So, reproach is it simply means that you find fault or blame. In in Timothy, one uh, Timothy chapter three talks about how the leaders of the church should be above reproach. It's simply saying that you shouldn't be a disappointment to other people, that you shouldn't be found fault, or bl- you shouldn't have anything to be blamed of uh, as a leader. And so we see that on this day, God, he rolled away, he takes away the reproach of Egypt. So what is the reproach of Egypt? Before, remember, when they were people of Israel, when they were living in Egypt, they were slaves. They were living in sin. They were living in a lot, way that they were disconnected from God. They were living in this old way, this old life, following the ways of the world, living under the authority of the world. And so that was the reproach of Egypt, that there was constantly these these messages and these reminders that you are nobody. You're just a slave. You're just working for Pharaoh. And even when they left um, Egypt, they were constantly reminded of this. When they were trying to go into the promised land, 10 of the spies said, no, compared to the Canaanites, we are like grasshoppers before them we are so small. So although Israel left slavery uh, in Egypt, it took a while for them to get the slavery out of them. They were still thinking as slaves. They were living in their old ways, in their past. And God says, when you circumcise not just your body, but your heart, what I'm going to do is I'm going to roll away, take away the reproach of Egypt. No one can blame you. No one can Cause the shame in you to destroy the intimacy that I desire to have with you. So the third thing that we see is this: God removes the shame of their old life. God removes the shame of their old life. So let's let's kind of wrap this up, chronological order. So God He He binds up the enemies of Israel. And He 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 tells Joshua, circumcise not just your body but your heart. And doing so, God removes the shame and the old life from the Israelites. And now they are able to feast on the blessings of God that comes from the land that God has given to them. Now, why is this so significant? This story sounds so familiar because this is exactly what our greater Joshua does for us. I told you in the introductory sermon when we were looking at the book of Joshua that the name Joshua means God saves right? And we have a greater Joshua because the Joshua, the name in Hebrew, it transliterates into the Greek name Jesus. And so the greater Joshua, Jesus, he comes and he is the one who binds up our enemies. Not just people living in cities, but he destroys our enemies, death, sin, Satan, if you read the book of Revelation, it talks about how these enemies are basically they are bound, they know that their time is up, so they are just you know trying to do some stuff at the end of the day, but they are defeated, they are demoralized. The reason why they're going after God's people is because they know that their time is short, they are afraid of God. The next thing that we see is Jesus when he He, when he died on the cross for us, that we, when we believe in the simple reality that Christ in Him, that we have new life, that the old has passed away, the new has come. That He not only destroys our enemies, but He takes away our shame. He allows us to live a new life, a life that is not of the old, but. Of the new, He allows us to be free from our past mistakes, our past failures, and actually embrace this new life. And by doing so, we are able to feast on a daily basis on the glory and the blessing of God. And if you think I'm making this up, look at Colossians 2.11. It says, In him, Jesus, also you believers were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. By putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. If you are in Christ and you believe in Jesus Christ, what God is saying is this. You can have intimacy with me, that you are in a covenant relationship with me, and I'm not going to let anything come in between you and me because I have paid the ultimate price. There's no more shame, no more guilt. You can be loved in a way. You can follow me in a way. You don't have to be afraid how the past is going to haunt you. You can live a new life. So when you receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, he removes your shame. And you might ask, how does this work? Well, because on the cross, Jesus, not only did he endure the pain, but he took the ultimate shame. Literally, the Son of God came to earth as a man. Not just a man, but it says in Philippians chapter 2, he lowered himself to the position of a servant, Not only that, he lowered himself to the point of death. Humbled himself. Why? To die on the cross. And on the cross, he was naked. He was called names. People were taunting him, mocking him. He took all the blame, all the shame. Did not retaliate. Why? Not because he deserved it. So that he could make a way for you and me. That taunting, that shame belonged to us. And yet, on the cross, God since his son and his son Jesus experienced all the shame in the world so that when we believe in him, that we don't have to live in shame, but we can be unashamed for the gospel, for the glory of God. So I just want to give you two practical things to examine um, as you kind of go back. There are two ways that we are attacked by shame, in my opinion, today. Two ways that the enemy reminds us of our past and our failures. The first one is this. Past sin, past sin. Everyone is broken. Everyone has messed up at one point, and there are some sins that you ask for forgiveness in the past, but just every now and then it comes back to haunt you. Like there are some times when you know I'm, I'm you know I'm a pastor. I'm, I'm preaching in front of people, and 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 sometimes you know I wonder. What would my friends think back in high school, middle school, when you know they might not have seen my godly side? What would they think if I'm preaching this message, right? And I'm thinking to myself, uh, and and like how ridiculous would this sound? Like me, a sinner, saying that you know by grace I'm saved, I can live a righteous life, a holy life. That that's ridiculous. You know, every now and then, even as a pastor, almost on a daily basis. I'm not just reminded physically about other people but from time to time, but daily, the enemy is whispering in my ears. Who are you to talk about God? Who are you to talk about holiness? Who are you to actually talk about sin before people? And there's this constant reminder of all the failures and the past sins that I have. There are some sins that are hard to, in a sense, kind of reverse. For example, you know, some people... If you failed in your purity, like despite you asking for forgiveness and God forgiving you, and that forgiveness is so true, there are times when the enemy will whisper when you're in a new relationship. By the way, you remember what happened back then when you lost your purity? There are times when you go back and you think about your failures in parenting, your failures in marriage, your failures in friendships, and, and as you're trying to live a new life, you're constantly being reminded. And as you're being reminded, what's happening is shame is being built up in your heart, and because of that, you don't want to read God's word, you don't want to seek Him in prayer. It's destroying the intimacy that you have with the Lord. And I want to let you know that shame is not something that God uses, but shame is from the enemy. The perfect example is Judas, where Peter, Judas, both of them failed in a way. Peter denied Jesus three times. Judas sold Jesus to the cross. Both failed. Both sinned. Peter later on repents, and he's restored. Judas, he's so shameful. He's, he, 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 he's, he's dis, he's, he feels like he's a disgrace to God, so he goes on, and he hangs himself. That, that's what shame does. And so don't live in the past. If Jesus had paid for your sins and I'm not talking about your unrepented sin. If you have repented, if you dealt with your sin before the Lord and you know that God's grace is more powerful than the power of your sin, then you can bank not on your prayer, not on what you said, but you can bank on the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. You can bank on God's grace and His promises. When He says, I'm going to give you a new life, a new beginning, it's not that you're just an upgrade from your previous life, but you are a new creation in Christ. That's a clear promise. That's not just a concept that's in the Bible, that's a reality. So don't let the enemy steal the joy that you have with Jesus Christ. Another way that the enemy attacks us is through our weaknesses and our struggles, our present weaknesses and our struggles. Some of you might be struggling with anxiety and depression, and you might be wondering, man, if I'm feeling this way, I might not be a Christian. Like me being so lost, like is something wrong with me? Am I not under God's grace? For some of you, it might be your sexuality or gender identity when you you feel like, man, something is wrong with me. There's no way God is gonna love me, accept me if I'm having these type of problems. Maybe for you guys it's it's this this habitual sin. Maybe for you guys it's it could be that I just don't have a good enough story for my testimony that that although, you know, Jesus, His grace is enough, it's sufficient, my testimony, just like we talked about last week, it's not as dramatic, it's not as exciting, and if I don't have that, like I'm not a strong Christian. No, when, when Jesus says that the old has passed away, the new has come, when it says in Ezekiel 37, when, when God says, I'm going to give you a new heart, that promise is for sure. No, God wants to remove your shame, just like He removed the shame that exists in the Israelites, that he wants to put that aside so that they can live and enjoy the full blessings of God. If you never heard this before, God, if you have faith in Jesus, says to you that you are clean, that you are pure, not on the basis of your works, of who you are or what you have done, but on the basis of who Jesus is. Never forget that. In fact, it says in Ephesians 5, when God sees you, he doesn't see a mess, but he sees the righteousness of Christ and a clean bride. So don't let sin and shame rob the intimacy that you have with God. Jesus is our greater Joshua, and he circumcised not our body, but our hearts. And he gives us a new beginning so that now, What we can do is enjoy the full blessings and the promises of God, feasting on God's goodness and his grace on a daily basis. Trust in him. Follow him today. Stop being stubborn. Don't be stiff-necked, but trust in him, him alone. Praise God. Praise Jesus. Let's pray.